Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring a true crime from 1896. 125 years later, this story's impact can still be felt among the locals. The house where it occurred still stands and is sometimes open to the public for special events. Its ghostly reputation has been cemented over years of unexpected sightings of both the murderess and her victims, the very family with whom she lived. At the time of the triple murder, this crime captured the fearsome imaginations of so many Ohioans. Even today, the story has spread wide and far. It's been turned into an award-winning play, once performed in a barn near the property itself. It's the subject of many vlogs and newspaper articles. The house itself is a hotspot of paranormal investigation, drawing ghost-hunting teams over wide expanses, all searching for a trace of the restless spirits who linger in this unsettled space. The supposed haunted structure is situated in what is today a state park. In 1972, the state of Ohio purchased the Malabar Farm, once owned by former Mansfield resident, Louis Bromfield. In the late 1930s, this Pulitzer Prize-winning author returned home after living abroad in France. The war was heating up, so he decided to bring his family home to the rolling hills of Richland County. He'd purchase a plot of farmland, more than a thousand acres of it, just outside Mansfield. There, he'd build a 32-room country mansion. The sprawling estate would come to attract many celebrities of the era, including such returning guests as Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney. This farm was no movie set, however. It was a working operation. While Broomfield's skills with the pen were admired the world over, his skills with the plow had yet to be exploited. Broomfield would go on to develop a practice of conservation farming. With the support of programs set in place by Roosevelt's New Deal, he was able to rehabilitate his land and establish sustainable practices that would make Malabar Farm a model for other farmers to emulate around the world. And if that isn't all extraordinary enough, Louis Bromfield would come to realize that his sprawling estate contained yet something more. Something unexpected. Something we're still trying to understand today. I'm talking about the Seely Rose House at Malabar Farm State Park. Included in Bromfield's original purchase of the land was a very modest two-story clapboard farmhouse, white with green shutters. When Bromfield realized the historical significance of this ordinary structure, he did what he did best. He wrote about it. The folklore which surrounded the house was documented in his first book about the farm, called Pleasant Valley. That's how wonder seekers around the globe came to learn of a common 19th century home outside Mansfield. Its troubled former residents are rumored to remain in spirit, frozen in time. 
to get a feel for the seed of this story, for the way ordinary citizens came to hear of it. Let's take a glimpse of a detailed article published in the Chicago Tribune on August 17, 1896. This article, entitled An Awful Peril of a Girl, examines the story of one 23-year-old woman awaiting trial for the poisoning deaths of her mother, father, and brother. The subtitle hints at her lonesome life, her longing for love, and the family members whom she believed were in the way. Come, hear this story, as learned by countless readers of many newspapers across the country in August 1896. Seely sat in a cell at the Richland County Jail. Considered a degenerate by many, this young woman's nature was odd to say the least. She spent her time sewing and reading in her cell and spoke freely of the deaths of her family members. She greeted visitors in a cheerful tone and showed little emotion when speaking of their torturous deaths. When asked about Guy Barry, the 17-year-old, a strapping farm boy from next door. Her mood shifted to one of giddiness, born of a schoolgirl crush. Something was off about her. Some felt her insane. Others disagreed wholly, claiming that Celie wasn't crazy, just delayed, the social and emotional skills of an eight-year-old. Despite some believing that she may not have known the difference between right and wrong, this would be her first offense of any kind. Celie's father, David, had been a disabled veteran of the Civil War. At 70 years old, he still managed to operate a nearby grist mill after the family moved to the area about 17 years prior. They'd hailed from the Appalachian Hills of Southern Ohio. While the business had taken a downturn, on account of the rise of gas-powered mills, David eked out an existence with the aid of his wife's small weaving business and his adult son's employment as a farmhand for neighboring operations. David Rose was known as a man of moral decency and strict privacy, not unlike countless other farmers of the region. The family did what they could to keep their heads above water. For Seely, this generally meant helping here and there with the housework when directed by her mother. She couldn't work in any gainful sense on account of her social and emotional immaturity, as we'll discuss later. The Roses weren't known to cause trouble, but they were considered outsiders on account of their move from the Appalachian Hills. Many neighbors left them to their own devices. Although the men in particular were known for passionate and vindictive thinking, none of the family were thought as dangerous. Odd, yes. A little backward, perhaps. Capable of cold-blooded murder, definitely not. The family living closest to the Roses was the Berries. George Berry, the farmer, lived with his wife, two sons, a daughter, and an elderly father. Generations of this family had lived in the area a long time. They were well accepted into the social circles of that area and highly respected. 
Though the two farmhouses were within shouting distance of one another, the two farmers had taken to a kind of avoidance of each other. The berries noted something peculiar in the Rose's way of thinking and perhaps behaving. And so while everything was kept civil, there was also a distinct unease when coming upon each other on accident. A kind of awkward nod and then a moving along to avoid anything resembling a conversation. This general pattern of avoidance between the two families persisted until one day when Celie set her eyes on the young Guy Barry working in the field. Having no real friends or associates of her own age, Celie must have pondered what it might be like finding a partner, being in love. From the safe distance of her own home, she could gaze at the 17-year-old boy and fantasize on just what such a future might look like. For many that knew her well, Celie seemed a perpetual lonely character. Starved for attention, she'd delight at the smallest of interest shown by others. Despite her eagerness, while attending a one-room schoolhouse well into her twenties, only children under ten had any interest in socializing with her. She lacked the social graces, as they say. Her thoughts seemed reduced to basics, her reactions often inappropriate to the tone of the moment. She was a bit overweight, a well-rounded kind of physicality. Those of her same chronological age soon came to dismiss her as childish and left her out of their parties and other events. Celie's attendance at the school was spotty at best, especially as her body grew into adulthood. She was then left to scrounge what kind of connections she had available to her from the isolation of her own home. That's why one day, while he was plowing a cornfield with a team of horses, Celie surprised Guy when she emerged from the wooded lot that ran adjacent to their properties. She placed flowers in her hair. She remarked on how pleasant it was to watch him grow into the man he was becoming. Although he blew her off as strange at first, he grew inclined of her admiration of him, even though he returned none of it. Although Guy didn't initiate their contacts, he entertained her multiple trips across their property line to pay him her flirtations. This very one-sided love affair went on for some time. That is, until one day when Celie announced that the two of them would be married in three years. When she received his response of indifference, she stammered out a string of lies about other suitors who'd been pestering her for dates. She returned the next day, full of regret for having said it, and again proclaimed her undying love for Guy only. Guy's little brother, Claude, at overhearing the saga, took it upon himself to inform Celie that Guy already had a sweetheart. Although shocked at first, Celie quickly recovered by announcing, in all sincerity, that she would then marry Claude instead, once he came of age. At this, the Barry family, including Guy, grew quite tired of Celie's continued overtures. He began avoiding her wherever he could, 
which wasn't easy on account of how closely they lived. When he couldn't take it anymore, Guy told his father he'd have to move out if something wasn't done. Not wanting to lose a son, as well as a strong set of hands for working the farm, George Berry did something he didn't want to do. He marched straight over to the Rose House and told David all he knew of Celie's continued annoyances and intrusions. She was not to come on their property, for any reason. With George's leaving, David Rose turned on his daughter to deliver a scolding soaked in shame and embarrassment. How had she made such a fool of herself and the family name? Why couldn't she just act normal anyway? Through much hurt and anguish, Celie promised to stop going over to the Barry's place, if only her father promised not to tell her mother of the whole ordeal. Whatever promise David made to secrecy was soon lost, or perhaps he slipped one day and mentioned something of the unfortunate situation. Both Celie's mother and brother now knew, and they added their own scorn on top of what Celie had already received from her father. It was too much to bear. Rather than give in to despair, rather than taking to viewing herself as an object of shame and ridicule, she turned her anger outward. She would see to it that she would one day find a husband and start a life of her own, away from the oppression of her family. She was now all the more determined to make it happen. In her mind, the real trouble was with the feud which erupted between Guy's parents and her own. They were the obstacles to be overcome. With them out of the way, she and Guy would be free to unite and start their own lives together. Celie's parents were surprised to see their daughter's mood shift from one of hurt to obedience. Doing as she was told, she stayed away from the Berry's farm. She completed her chores when asked. She had never been known as this dutiful before. Something had indeed shifted, but her parents just couldn't explain it. How could they know she'd already committed to a plan of their demise? It was the morning of June 24, 1896. Celie cheerfully helped her mother in the kitchen, fixing breakfast. Her job was to make the smear case, which is a German word for cottage cheese. David and Walter both ate heartily of it before heading out for the day's work, while Rebecca only took a small portion. Celie had none for herself. She'd take what remained after the meal was over and throw it out in the backyard. One by one, Celie's father, brother, and mother took on a dreadful thirst. On taking a first sip of water, a violent wrenching in their gut led to explosive vomiting. The thirst remained, but none of them could keep even a swallow of water in them. Over the next hours and days, several local doctors were called to assist the miserable patients. All would come to agree on a diagnosis of arsenic poisoning. 
David would be the first to die after spending six days in misery. His son's death would follow five days later. Rebecca, Suli's mother, would slowly and precariously recover. Although Rebecca suspected that Suli had done the deed, she protected her from the prying questions of law officers and the local justice system. This final act of unconditional love as her parent created another window of lethal opportunity. On accepting a serving of bread and milk from Celie, Rebecca asked for seconds. On tasting the second helping, Rebecca's eyes fixed on Celie. She noted that it tasted sweeter than the first. She asked Celie, plainly, whether she had poisoned it. Celie first demurred, but then asked her mother why she would ask such a question. When Rebecca told her to look at her in the face and answer her, Celie only hung her head low in silence and left the room. The violent wrenching soon began, and Celie's weakened mother was dead within a day. A later confession Suli gave to a young woman pretending to befriend her would reveal that Suli had used rat poison previously purchased by her brother. She would use it to poison and kill each of her family members. Lab tests of the stomachs of both David and Walter Rose would indeed confirm poisoning due to arsenic, the active ingredient in rat poison. Within two weeks, all of the family Seely had left were now buried in Pleasant Valley Cemetery. Dead chickens lay strewn across the backyard, having ingested what Seely had thrown out on the first day of the whole ordeal. A long trial would later ensue, with Seely pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Despite considerable disagreement among professionals, as to whether her condition fit the legal definition of insanity. She was eventually granted an acquittal by reason of it. When asked if she felt sorry for what she had done, Celia said to have responded, Of course I feel bad and all that. I am all alone. When asked if she was going to marry Guy Barry, were she ever released, she acknowledged that he would likely marry another. She followed up by commenting that he had been one of the few to once treat her with respect when they'd met. She would spend most of the rest of her days in state hospitals before dying at the Lima State Hospital in 1934. This true crime event in Ohio's history, now 125 years in the making, has captured the imaginations of historians, artists, thespians, and writers. I've had the great fortune of connecting with one such person, Mr. Mark Sebastian Jordan. Just this year, his book on the subject was released. It's entitled The Seely Rose Murders at Malabar Farm. It's easily found on Amazon or wherever you buy books. I'll include a link to the Amazon page in the show notes. This book is the product of countless hours poring over historical documents, court records, 
and newspaper articles. Jordan has painstakingly stitched together the story, as it developed. He offers insights into the case's nuances, including the ongoing question as to Celie's mental and emotional deficiencies, a fact which lends more ambiguity as to her level of intention and understanding in committing the crimes. Jordan became fascinated with the case when he first learned of it as a child. Then, when he later came upon the story while reading the book Haunted Ohio, he was hooked. This intrigue would go on to inspire him to write a play on the subject, one which would come to be performed in a barn at Malabar Farm, a stone's throw away from the Seely Rose house itself. Jordan has graciously shared his passion for the history, but that's not all. During the play's production, unexplained experiences kept occurring, especially around emotionally charged scenes. A master storyteller, Jordan shares what he knows of the documented history, but more than this, he shares something of the spiritual experiences felt by him and others as they worked to bring this tale to life through theater. Come, hear his story. Well, my name is Mark Sebastian Jordan, and I am a writer. I have been involved with lots of various different kinds of writing over over the years, uh, sort of have an insatiable curiosity and wear a lot of different hats. Uh, so I'm uh, a published uh, dramatist, playwright. Uh, I have published poetry. I have written humorous books. I do a lot of journalism. Um, and I have had an avid interest in history for a long time. That goes all the way back to when I was in high school and all my classmates said, oh, this place is boring. Nothing interesting's ever happened here. And I took the simple step of deciding to check out and see if that was actually true. And it Turns out it's not. There's actually a lot of interesting stories if you dig into history. And so the Seely Rose case first came to my attention actually quite young. I was a, even as a child, I had a great interest in spooky, strange, or macabre stories. And my mother recognized this about me. And when I was 12 years old, there was an article in the newspaper talking about ghosts in Ohio State Parks. And she pointed me toward the article, said, I think this is something you'd be interested in. And I was surprised to find that the bulk of the article was about an alleged haunting in Malabar Farm State Park, which is in the very same county where I lived. So that caught my attention there and... Later, we had a school trip that went to Malabar Farm. I heard about the story again there and, uh, you know, visited the park later on, heard about it some more. And then finally, in the mid-1990s, I read a book by Chris Woodyard called Haunted Ohio that has a version of the story in there. Uh, Woodyard went back and checked some of the original documents through flesh out what is known about the story a little more. And it's funny, I, I left the job I was working at to go get some lunch one day, uh, but I while I was there getting lunch, I stopped in at a bookstore and found that book. 
and grabbed it, took it back. I got very little work done that afternoon. As soon as I read Woodyard's story of Seely Rose, I thought this could be done as a play, could bring the story to life on the stage. So I jumped in, researched it further, wrote a dramatic version of it, and then, you know, I had to develop and improve that script for a few years. But eventually, I approached Malabar Farm State Park and said, is it possible for us to actually present this play here? And we decided to do it in the big barn at Malabar, co-production between the Malabar Farm Foundation and the Mansfield Playhouse, a local theater troupe. And we started that in 2003. I later wrote other historical dramas, uh, invited another writer in uh, to do another drama. So we had these shows going for over a decade. So we did it as dinner theater. People loved it. So I decided at some point I needed to take all of my research and put it in a proper in-depth history. And that's what was published this summer by the History Press. It's called... The Seely Rose Murders at Malabar Farm. The house is tucked in against the hillside. If it had a little more light, it might seem like a, a, a pleasant little, you know, nestled in place. But as as it is, the, the place is kind of dark just because it doesn't get much sunlight during the day because it's nestled in against the ridge and there's trees surrounding so it's uh it's a place that uh that manages to feel a little isolated okay isolated and in shadow as well um you know mm-hmm. which yeah i can see how that would maybe cast somewhat of a pall in a way yeah um mm-hmm. And in, in the times that you've been in the house, would you say that you've noticed anything unusual or have had any uh, encounters, so to speak, that you can't explain? It's remarkable how consistent the place has felt to me over the years. Mm-hmm. Every time I walk in the place, the first floor feels, there's just a feeling of heaviness, a sad, heavy sort of feeling. You know, it's it's certainly not helped by the current condition of the place. You know, it's just kind of musty and uh, uh, an old carpet on the floor and such. It, but it it has this heavy sort of feel to it. Now, when I go upstairs, there's a, a similar feeling throughout most of the area until I step into the front bedroom, which we believe. I mean, there's no solid documentation on this, we think that was probably the room where Celie and her brother slept. Every time that I walk into that room, it's like walking into a field of static, in a way. It's, it's, it's even harder to think clearly in there, just because you're, you're sort of bombarded by this energy of I don't know how to describe it other than to call it like static or like noise in a way, except it's absolutely silent. There's no literal sound. And I could see where it would be hard to put that into words. And it, it kind of interrupts your thinking, your concentration. 
Yeah, it's, it's hard to concentrate in that room. Mm-hmm. And that's been uh, pretty consistent for you, the times that you've been yeah, there? It's been, been remarkably consistent, which is interesting, because I've been in other places that uh, are said to be haunted, and sometimes I might pick up on it more, other times not so much. Um, but in uh, the Rose Farmhouse, it varies in intensity from time to time, but it's always there. Hmm. Does that seem to be in line with other people's accounts as well uh, in their experience of it, or have you talked much with other people? Oh, I've talked a lot. It does seem in line. A number of people, you know, one of the things that has happened over the years um, is that a lot of people have taken pictures and caught what seems to be you know, faces in in the window. A lot of people have driven by and claimed they saw someone looking out the the windows of that that room hmm. upstairs. Um, so there's a, a long tradition of uh, things associated with that, um, and there's lots of stories as well. Um, there's one from a park employee who lived in there with his family. And I think this took place at some point in the 1970s. They sent their their child, a toddler, uh, to to bed one evening, and the the kid came back downstairs and said, you know, they asked the child what what they were doing. I actually, don't know if it was a boy or a girl. Um, they asked the child what they were doing, and the child said, I can't get to sleep. That woman keeps talking. And you know, I could only describe some sort of woman who keeps talking to him or her, keeping them awake. Um, I have a report that I really want to talk to the person it happened to. I actually briefly spoke with his wife, and they promised to talk with me more at some later point. Um, but... Apparently, someone who grew up in the house at some point there in the past was actually pushed out a window as a child. Oh, and, my. You know, badly, badly hurt by that. Um, so I'm hoping to talk with him at some point, because at this point, I'm starting to try to gather these various stories so I can do that as a follow-up book, because the history of the case in itself is... Uh, is, is one entire book in itself. Yes. And then the associated stories will be another one. I think that's a great way to look at the whole situation from multiple angles. Um, yeah. And you do wonder sometimes, or at least I do, uh, whether these kinds of events that are laden with emotions um, leave a, some some kind of imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, like a residue. It was the very first year that we were producing the play, 2003. One thing that happened during one of the rehearsals is uh, a, a vivid memory. In the actual case, Celie poisoned her family because she thought they were preventing her from getting together with the boy she loved. The boy she loved actually was not interested in her. This was just an obsession in Celie's mind. Um, when she poisoned the family, she used 
rough on rats brand rat poison mixed into cottage cheese that she served them for breakfast. Father died within a day. Her brother died a week later. Her mother started to recover, so she poisoned her a second time. So one of the key plays, in fact, really the emotional climax of the entire play, is this scene where Celie and her mother are talking. After the others are gone, Celie's mother clearly figured out what her daughter did, but made the decision to try and protect her because she was the last family she had left. But then once Celie realized that the mother intended to move them away, that would take her away from the boy she had a crush on. Therefore, she decided to poison her mother a second time. So one evening, we're rehearsing, and they got so intensely into the scene, they would be in tears every time they, they performed this. But one night, we're rehearsing the scene, and I'm walking around in the barn looking at the scene from different angles to make sure that everything can be seen well from different points of view in the audience, at which point I notice there is a light in the barn, the light closest to them. You know, this is rehearsal. We don't have the bright stage light yet. We're just using the regular uh, lighting in the barn. And I notice the light closest to them is pulsing on and off. Mm. It's not flickering like, you know, the way an incandescent bulb used to flicker before it would burn out. It wasn't that at all. It was a steady pulsing on, off, on, off. No other light was was doing this, and it was the light closest to them on stage. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. And I made a split-second decision at that moment not to tell the actresses about that because they were in the midst of this intense scene. In fact, their intensity was so great, I was pulled back into watching them, and I forgot about the light. They finished the scene where Rebecca dies, and I looked back at the light. It had gone off completely. Did not come on again the rest of the evening. Came in there uh, the next evening to rehearse. The light was on as normal. Stayed on as normal. In fact, I ended up not telling Char and Candy about that light until after the production was done. And they thanked me for it. They said they would have been freaked out if they'd known that the light was signaling at them as they were performing that scene. Oh, my. Um, another memorable incident that happened was the Tuesday, I think, of Tech Week. You know, there's so much information in this story, I had to condense it down to particular scenes in order to tell the story on stage. So the play unfolds as like a series of snapshots. Between each scene, I used... Uh, old recordings from the 1920s and 30s of folk music and such. So the sound design was a really important part of the production. It set the mood and, you know, carried or, you know, made the transition from one scene to the next. So it was a very important part of the whole design. Well, about halfway through Act One, uh, the Tuesday night of Tech Week, two days before we opened, because we opened on Thursday, and we had already sold out all of the performances, you know, before even opening the show. So two days before we open, we're going through rehearsal. We have all the lights, costumes, set, sound, all this stuff 
going on, and about halfway through Act One, suddenly the sound starts malfunctioning. It, it, uh, you can hear a faint ghost of sound in the distance, but the actual full volume sounds don't there. Well, my tape director had already left because everything was set up, and once again he had to work early the following day, so he had just left and said, "Let me know if there are any any problem." I did the thing you do. I plugged and unplugged, unplugged and replugged, I should say, the various connecting cables, made sure everything, everything was working. Everything appeared to be working just fine. But the sound was almost completely inaudible. Hmm. It just, it made no, no sense that we, we couldn't get the sound. And here's this important element of the design. And we're just two days from opening the sold out crowds. And I suddenly have no sound. So I, I called Dan in a panic after the rehearsal and said, what are we going to do? We've got a fiasco on our hands. Now we've got sellout crowds coming in two days and my sound design has disappeared. Everything appears to be working, but I've got no sound. Oh. Dan said, don't worry, calm down. It obvi- obviously has to be one piece of equipment has failed in the chain of equipment. You know, you have the board, the amplifier, the speakers something was still coming out of the speakers so you know we knew at least that they were functional uh we just weren't getting the sound to the speakers in an adequate manner he said i will bring a new piece of equipment and i will come into rehearsal early tomorrow night i'll figure out which thing has screwed up and we'll fix it this this is a simple fix do not work so that settled me down for the evening he comes in a little before rehearsal the following night and starts testing out the, the pieces of equipment, trying different stuff, and getting nothing. And this goes on and on and on. And he's over there starting to cuss at the equipment because one by one he tries each piece of equipment and it's still doing the same thing. He unplugged and replugged all the connectors everywhere, the same troubleshooting that you'd normally do. And we're still not not getting the the sound he's getting frustrated and meanwhile i have all the actors standing around wanting to know when we're going to start rehearsal because we're already late getting started and this is the day before we open this is terrifying in a production situation so (laughs) i felt crazy about it as i did it then and i always feel crazy now whenever i retell this story but at that point, I had nothing to lose because we were in a desperate situation. So I went over to the side of the barn away from everyone else. And I whispered out loud, really? We are just trying to tell your story so that people can see what happened. And maybe something like this would never have to happen again if we get this story out there and we cannot tell this story without your help please let the sound go within 30 seconds of me whispering that in the corner suddenly sound blared forth from that system I look back over at Dan and he's just looking at the equipment shaking his head because it wasn't something he had done at that point Wow. And uh, to this day, we don't know what happened with, with things, but yeah, that's, that's 
just the way it went. What the a sound man. worked fine after that. Yeah. Just to keep on the stage side, I actually made it part of the uh, stage manager's business in the productions to always invite Healy to come to the shows after that. What a um, moment. Yeah. And there were further incidences. I could talk your ear off with things like this. No, I really appreciate you sharing, especially that last one. It was such a kind of natural thing that you did. It probably led in a more out of some desperation, but also just like a kind of spiritual moment. Um, and I think, um, it's, it's a powerful experience, what you're describing. Yeah. Um, certainly it's stuck with you all this time. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Some life experiences stick with us for obvious reasons, like the day you got your driver's license, or perhaps your wedding day. Other experiences, like the kind that reveal a glimpse of the spirit world, can change us in ways we never imagined. Sometimes we find ourselves brushing up against forces beyond ourselves, and in that moment, we connect with what cannot be seen or measured, but felt. Those lucky enough to have such experiences walk away transformed and forever altered. Most of our connections are with humans of the living variety, our family, friends, and neighbors. Participation in the larger community shields us from the damages of isolation and lonesomeness. While much remains uncertain as to Celie Rose's intentions in murdering her entire family, one thing seems pretty clear. She was different from others in some way disabled in her mental capacity. She was lonely and feared a life of isolation as her parents aged. Fear, as they say, is the root of all evil. It drives our worst impulses. It convinces us that selfish actions are justified. It underlies pain, division, and disconnection from one another. To borrow a passage from 1 Corinthians, love is indeed patient and kind. The antithesis of fear, it does not insist on its own way. It rejoices in the truth. While we can never know the full truth of Celie's intentions, given her apparent mental deficits, we can assume that her impulse to kill was out of fear of losing love. Her assumption that love could be manipulated that it could be strong-armed, drove her to kill those closest to her. As humans, our need for love is a driving and universal force. It's the one power that transcends death, that keeps us connected to loved ones who have gone before us. Perhaps it's true that somewhere behind the veil, Celie laments her selfishness. Perhaps it was indeed her energy that haunted those working to bring her story to life. Perhaps she longs for a chance to right these serious wrongs. While that may be my own wishful thinking, I do think this story offers valuable lessons on love and life. If you wish to find love, you must give it. If you wish to seek love, you must show it through acts of selflessness and self-sacrifice. Had Celie felt more love and acceptance from those within her community, 
she may not have given in to the despair of never having it. Perhaps her spirit anguishes over her deeds long done. May we be mindful of our own choices made in fear or love. The choice is ours. This concludes today's episode on the Seely Rose House at Malabar Farm. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps people find the show. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.